Good morning. We are live. This is the recovery podcast. It's called Peggy's Recovery Corner. We're a podcast that is geared towards recovery from substance abuse, from alcoholism, from addiction. And we talk with a lot of people that are professionals or have suffered with mental health and overcome many of their issues throughout their life. Uh, today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Christina. Hi. Welcome back to the corner. We tried to have you on here before, but we had some technical difficulties. So I thought very we would start yeah, to have you come back. Um, Saturday morning, we what we usually do, Christina, is we, we delve into your past. We want to get to know who you, where you're from, where you were born, where you grew up, what that was like. Um, and we can get into the nitty gritty, the stuff you may have gotten into, things that you did throughout your life, and then what made you come into the path of recovery. So... Who is you? <laughs> Who's Christina? It's complicated, but simple. <laughs> you know, um, I will say that, that uh, again, thank you for having me. Um, I adore you. We've, we've been traveling in these same circles, and now I realize that, that we, are, we are brothers and sisters okay. in, you know, born the same year. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so... I was born in, in Queens, New York, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, in, you know, in the seventies. And, uh, I think that, um, you know, my family, I'm Puerto Rican and black, at least until I did 23 and me and realized that <laughs> there's, there's more in me. <laughs> so really? I got questions, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, my my mom had eight sisters. They all lived in a two bedroom, one bath apartment in the Basley Park projects. They were in and out of orphanages, you know, and I didn't find that out till later, um, which explains the, um, you know, the, the lack of mothering skills that my mom had. She did the best she could with what she had, but it was, um, it was very difficult for her to connect to me and, and, and me to her. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, growing up, we moved, we started moving. Uh, my parents joined the Air Force so that they could get out of poverty. You know, it was either post office, you know, military, you know, or something of that um, nature. And my mom, and uh, dad chose the Air Force. And so we started moving around a lot. Um, both of them had issues with alcohol. And, um, you know, when, when my father would um, not get what he needed from my mom, he would come and visit me. Um, when my father would, would um, hit on my mom, my mom would take it out on me, you know. Um, there was a lot of, so the family house and dynamic was unsafe. Um, the people that were supposed to protect me didn't. Um, my father also was involved in um, child pornography. And, um, you know, so um, I didn't have agency over my body. I didn't have, a, you know, it's like, I had to figure out how to survive in these circumstances, you know, and, and growing up, um, you know, my, my family, my parents finally split when I was 
nine. And, you know, how, how the pain started to surface for me was through, um, I had eating disorder, you know, I had, I had a various, a lot of things. One of the things I did say that I was not going to do though, was I was not going to be like them. You know, alcoholism addiction runs heavily through my family. And I was like, I am not going to be like these folks because I understand the pain and, and uh, the problems um, that come through with that. And I didn't, you know, so um, my ism showed up in eating, my ism showed up in fantasy, my ism showed up in people pleasing. Um, you know, I moved out of my house when I was 15 and a half into a halfway house. Um, and uh, when you say a halfway house at 15 and a half, was it like uh sober living or was it a place yeah, where I think, it was, I think it would be equivalent to a sober living, but you know, for Did they have that for 15 year olds at that age, yeah, I emancipated and oh, you, uh, you know, I you know, it was it was kind of yeah, it was like I, I would, yeah, so you know, because I can take care of myself, I don't need mm -hmm. it. <laughs> that was it, you know, and I can't even imagine. So I have a 22 year old. I can't even imagine mm -hmm. that. Like when I looked at my kid when he was at, I was like, "How in? How did I do that?" You know. Um, so, you know, I, I finished. I, I finished um, high school on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, I had help getting into college, but there, there was this long. There was this longing to belong. There was this feeling of inadequacy, um, you know, and, and always having to prove myself that I've, that I belonged here in this world, that I belonged next to you, that I just belonged period, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, insert all the different things that happen with, uh, you know, Brown and black folk. Um, it's, you know, it's been a very difficult and challenging experience, you know, um, trying to just be, um, I didn't find drugs and alcohol until much later in college. Um, that was when I first started to get a, a different perspective about who my people were, who I was, um, questioning my sexuality. And, um, I'd become the first, uh, I'd, I wanted to sing, but instead I, I did journalism because my mom was like, only spiritual people can do that. You should go do something else. Um, and I and I listened to her um, and I became, um, I started journalism and was the first women of culture, woman of culture to have um, a job um, as editor of the newspaper. Now this is in Arizona. I had moved to Arizona at the time to go to oh. school at Arizona State. So immediately I was met with go back to your own effing country, death threats, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I had no coping skills, you know? Um, no one in my family talked about their feelings. I had done a little bit of therapy, but you know, again, there was, there was just no, no place for me to put these feelings. I knew that I wanted to do something. I knew that I wanted to help people. I knew that I wanted to be a part of a, a changing world um, where it was more inclusive, but I didn't have the skills to to cope with these feelings and the barrage of, of 
hate that was coming my way. This um, is so interesting to hear this because you're Puerto Rican and black, unless there's some other stuff that's mixed in there since you found out through one of those uh, yeah. DNA tests. But I, I don't understand why they would say go back to your own country unless they're that. Uh... Honey, the things that I've been told, you know, and I'm like, and where exactly would that be? Because the last time I checked, I was born here. Unless New York is its own country and nobody told me I was born here. In Utah, they used to tell me, I mean, I grew up with some of these kids and there was a lot of good people, but there was a few, a select few that just had this way about like a learned behavior. They would tell me my granddaddy used to own your granddaddy. And I think to myself, didn't we like take these classes together and learn about like the, how how the United States was actually created and where it came from? And wow, like you really think that way? Like you actually would say that to somebody? But but I get it. So I, I understand um yeah bigotry it was it was really hurtful because you know it's 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 so the messages that i got you know on top of the unsafety in my family and the you know the alcoholism there's this other layer of you know because of the way i look um i am uh defective mm -hmm. and that um and, and that was really hard for me to, you know, um, understand, like, why, why, why is this? And so with that also came internalized racism, internalized misogyny, you know, just, you know, just, um, I wanted to be anything other than what I was. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got sober that I started really um, leaning into um, that I was not defective, mm -hmm. and that I was created out of love, you know, so fast forward, you know, I, I, I start this social justice movement. We started this movement called students against discrimination. We had one of the largest rallies because there was a lot of, I don't know if you remember higher learning, but it was, it was like, I remember it was like that at Arizona state. Yeah. Um, and so you know, all the groups, all the different organizations, Landa League, the Black Student Union, the Native American um, Society, like we all got together and said, how do we fix this? Mm -hmm. How do we how do we come up with, you know, um, a set of guidelines for teachers, for this school, for students to be able to to be able to enter here, feel safe and inclusive. And so we had a rally. It was one of the largest rallies there. And, and you know, we formulated the Intergroup Relations Center mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and accomplished a lot. And then I promptly graduated college and mm -hmm. promptly started doing drugs and alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> because, again, I had no coping skills. And all of a sudden, you know, I had found weed. And then weed was like, you know, because now I didn't like I stopped caring. Why? This is what what's interesting. You were an activist, like you were yeah. really trying to be a part of the movement. So why why did you go in that direction? Why did you stop caring? Um, because it hurt too much. Ah. it hurt too much, and and I had found this substance which made it all go away. Mm -hmm. So when when I am smoking and I'm drinking, it doesn't hurt anymore. Or mm -hmm. at least, at least, you know, it's like I put it off. Yeah. So, Temporary. yeah. And when I picked up weed, 
that was when I crossed the invisible line because now I'm like, well, what else is out there? And mm -hmm. so I started using cocaine and ecstasy and, and, and all of those things, um, you know, it was fun and then it was not fun. Mm -hmm. And I almost died. I'm, I'm surprised that I have brain cells. The right. damage I did, you know, and I got, um, and then I, I had opportunities in the music business to be an MTV VJ. You know, my, my career was starting to go like this mm -hmm. and then in a drunken stupor, I, I, I got pregnant because <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> and I was like, wait, 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 hold on a second. So I'm just going to go have this baby over here and then I'm going to go finish my album and then I'm going to go on tour and then everything is going to be chill. We're great. It's going to be great. And right. um, the silence, <laughs> it was get back to me later, never. Um, and then I had this child um, with my now, with my now partner, um, and I really wanted to be a better mom than, than what was given to me. Mm -hmm. And for a couple of years, I, I didn't do anything. I did do, um, I did smoke weed during my pregnancy, which brought me a lot of shame because if I didn't have a problem, then why would I do it? What? Again, this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, right? I was like, it's of the earth, so it's okay. Mm -hmm. Again, the denial factor is great. Um, right. And then it just, being at home, having been almost, you know, a, my career, not having a career, being at home with my son by myself, not having again the tools to to be able to cope with the feelings the emotions it got bad and then my son was in preschool i was drinking around the clock i was drinking like a gallon of gallon of captain morgan's because i want to support my people mm -hmm. <laughs> Smoking, smoking weed unaddictively every day and doing cocaine to clean, but I never cleaned, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it got to a place where, uh, my partner had, had guns and, um, I had taken a gun one night and sat in the side room and thought, I'm going to end this for their sake no one needs to, I don't need to be here anymore. And I'm just, you know, when I think about where I was and what my life is like today, and if I would have just, if that, you know, for whatever reason, and I think God was there because there's no reason why that gun shouldn't have went off. Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't. And, um, in a blackout, I had hidden that gun in the kitchen with, in the pots and pans where my son could have gotten a hold of it. Mm. And again, 
I know that there was something out there looking out for all of us. And so I went to, you know, I finally got some help. I ended up in Cedars for 12 days because I was sick. Um, and then I ended up at the friendly house where Peggy Albrecht, who is just um, always be, that woman was incredible. She was a mentor. She was a mother. She was, you know, a gentle kick me in the ass or, do you know what I'm saying? She really, she knew how to talk to me and um, my life started to change at the friendly house. And that was uh, where you got sober. Like, how did you find the friendly house? In a blackout. In a blackout. <laughs> you happen to be in LA in the blackout and somebody somehow got you to the friendly house. Well, I ended up in a, in, in like a, free clinic or something like that. And mm -hmm. they gave me this paper that had these numbers on it, suicide hotline, da, da, da. And then there was friendly house on there, you know? And so I called the suicide hotline first cause right. you know, um, and I got to tell you a quick story. When I called the suicide hotline, the, this was back in the day, the Verizon, uh, operator got on and said that I needed to make a payment in order to keep my phone on. And I was like, uh, hello, I'm talking, I'm on the suicide hotline. And they're like, great. If you make a payment, you can, you can stay on the line. Mm -hmm. And they cut my phone off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, anyway, you know, obviously, um, yeah, I ended up at the friendly house and it was, again, this was the universe conspiring for me, even, even though I was not trying to help myself and, you know, um, and I started working the steps and I was extraordinarily emotional, angry about my life. Cause all the things that I talked about previously, I'd never really dealt with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, um, and so I just, I began the, the journey to recovery and it was not easy. Um, you know, some people have that white light experience. I had cravings for most of the first year. Uh -huh. I would, I would walk down the liquor aisle and look and see how much, um, the, uh, Captain Morgan's was, oh, it's on sale, you know, just do stupid, you know, stupid. And but I did start to feel a sense of hope when I walked into that house. Peggy saw through me. I thought what she was going to see, what she was seeing was my worthlessness. And what she was seeing was my potential. Mm -hmm. And um, for the first time, um, I felt seen. And I think that's what, you know, for me, recovery has been about being seen, seeing others, seeing myself as as a as a whole person not defective not worthless um in in light and in love um somebody had said that uh i was born on purpose in purpose for a purpose hmm. and um that was angela manuel davis she's amazing by the way um and that just resonated so deeply with me so you know, I started working in treatment about 10 years ago. Um, and then in the midst of this, my partner at around seven years started to exhibit real problems. He was a periodic. 
real problems with um, drinking. The periods got worse and worse. And um, I stopped doing what had been working in Alcoholics Anonymous. I stopped talking about what was going on in my home. At five years, he had, he had, we had had an agreement, no alcohol, nothing, no drugs in the house ever for my own sobriety. And at five years, he's like, you've been sober. You should be able to handle it. So he started bringing alcohol into the house again. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, yeah, I should be able to handle it. I've been sober for five years. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got time, I've got time, mm-hmm. but, you know, seeing that and just, just not honoring what was working for me, put me in a very bad, started to put me in a bad position at seven mm-hmm. years. Um, his drinking had gotten to the point where, you know, I'm, we're having arguments, um, bad ones like we did before I got sober. And I just remember specifically one night um, being overwhelmed and telling him to pour me a drink. I was like, you want this life back? Go ahead, pour me a drink, do it. And um, I'm in the kitchen and I don't, again, if he had poured me a drink, I probably wouldn't be here. But I ended up at a meeting. And I'm the type of person that I want your love, but I don't want your love. I want your hugs, but I don't want your hugs. I want intimacy, but I'm terrified of it. So my I go to this meeting that I've been going to for years, and I raised my hand. I said, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with all of it. And that was my way of saying, please help me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they took me to Green Blots. I got a pastrami sandwich and a cheesecake. And I remembered that this is a WE program. Mm. And that I don't have to do this alone. Right. You know, um, but I can tell you that my spiritual um, practice, my spiritual, my emotional well-being was um, in a bad place. And uh, I ended up in, so my, we were driving and he cut this woman off. It was early in the morning. I've been texting my sponsor, texting my sponsee, have a great day. I'm in the passenger side. He cuts this lady off. She is irate. She starts yelling. um, And then she, um, she looks at me and starts calling me names. And I was like, oh, hold on a second. Now, mind you, you know, even though I understand it's a WE program, I have been, I have been absent from my spiritual practice. Mm. And um, which is telling the truth, doing the work in the book. Um, and so my ism is highly activated and I don't know it. Um, and then he looks at me and he's like, you know, the old you would never have allowed anybody to talk to them like that. And I was like, just get me home. I just need to go to work. And so, but it's eight 30 in the morning and it's rush hour traffic. So we make a turn and she's here and I'm here. And then she tells me that she's going to kick my ass. And then she calls me the N word, not once, but twice. And so all I remember is taking off my belt getting out of my car. And then I just blacked out in rage. Um, and 
I never want to be in that place again, you know, sober in such a, in such a way that I don't, I put my hands on somebody mm-hmm. you know, and, and we both ended up, she didn't cause whatever, doesn't matter. I've done a lot of work on her. Um, I, because I got out of my car, I ended up in jail for a day and a half. We both did him and I, and um, that was like a, a wake up call for me. So, you know, um, I got it. And uh, I started going to our sister program, but I started working, you know, working the program again. When I'm in the middle, when I am, when I am active in my program, because this is a program of action, then I have the, the space, like I'm able to clear the space that gets cluttered when I don't do the work. And, you know, I get a resentment here. I get a, I get, you know, a, a fear here. And then all of a sudden the path to my higher power gets cluttered with all this other stuff. And, and, and we've got this, we've got this inconsistent connection, which allows my alcoholism to just show up and go, what we doing here? Do you really need to go to this meeting? Do you really need to do this? You know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, um, setting me up for a drink. Hmm. Um, and so at nine years, I, after doing a lot of work, um, I had filed for divorce. Um, one of the, one of the moments that made me want to do that was my son called me one night and um he said he was so upset because his father had taken away his uh xbox and said that he was grounded because he was playing xbox during a school day but it was a saturday and all of a sudden i'm here you know it was like this flashback of of what i dealt with when i was a kid You know, I like all of a sudden I'm back as a child looking to see what my mom was doing, looking to see what what my father was doing, feeling unsafe and unsupported. And um, and I just was that was no, I don't want my son to have to go through that. Hmm. So I filed for divorce and um, he was out of his mind. Um, and I really feared for my life at that time. And so we went, you know, we went away, um, where he couldn't find us. And I, um, I will never forget my son. Um, when I told him what we were doing and he was like, why can't you fix this? You, you, you can fix anything, you know? And, um, and just, we just, just broke me, you know, because I couldn't fix it. I don't have mm-hmm. any control over what he does. I do have control over what I do. And, and I, and I had to tell him, I said, you, in order for, in order for us to, to be healthy, we have to, we have to take care of ourselves. And, and I want to be the mom that you deserve. And I can't do that in this space under these circumstances, you know, and, and so, you know, after that, um, he did get sober like a week later. <laughs> I was so mad. <laughs> I was so 
mad. I was like, wow, okay. A little now, late yeah. now. But I had had program in me and I knew that I didn't have, again, my family, when we get angry, we just cut each other off. We mm -hmm. stop talking. Like there's, there, I have family members that don't even know why they're not talking. They just aren't talking because something, something upset them. Something mm -hmm. made them angry and it's been years. And they're like, I'll never talk to her again. You know, so that was my modeling for when things get uncomfortable, when things get, you know, um, when you get angry, you just cut them off. Right. And, um, and Peggy was instrumental in guiding me through this. My sponsor was guiding me through it. I took all of my frustrations to them. I did a lot of writing and a lot of work so that my son would never have to experience, you know, my, my, my mom and dad just went after each other, just character assassinated each other. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at myself going, well, if, if he's worthless and a piece of crap, what does that make me, you know? Um, and so I wanted to make sure that my child had a different experience and he did. I never said a bad thing about, about his father. I just said, he's sick and he's trying to get well and, you know, allowed them to heal their relationship. And, you know, after, after a year, he made amends to me and, and I remember calling my sponsor. I said, so, so he's, he wants to make amends. I said, if he doesn't, if he doesn't make all the amends that I think he should, can I say something? <laughs> she was like, no, <laughs> I was like, whatever. Um, and then we spent a year in therapy, learning how to communicate healthy, working through the, you know, I don't, like I said, I don't, I did not know how to have a betrayal, have a, um, have a heartbreak and heal from that. I didn't know how to do that. Um, so I had to be walked through it. And um, after a year, we decided to give it a go. And um, what I can say what alcoholism destroyed the 12 steps breathe life back into. He, he just turned eight. I just turned 17. And um, we have the life today that we've always wanted, you know, and, and um, we've had our ups and downs, but the person that I am today and the person that he is today are the people that we were trying to be you know, 20 some odd years ago, um, 25. Um, and so when I look at my life today, um, I started in April of last year. I've been working in, like I said, I've been working in treatment for, for 10 years, mm -hmm. I liked, you know, just learning, how to run a treatment center. I started as a, as a detox tech, you know, um, went to supervisor, program director, operations, director of operations. And then last April, um, Friendly House called and, and said, do you want to do admissions and business development? And I was like, wait a second, come back to the place that gave me my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yes. 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 And also it was right after, you know, the pandemic was, was, um, we were, I think, two year, a year, a year or so into it. Yes. I was exhausted. I was burnt out um, running a treatment center. And before the other treatment center, you mean, right? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that treatment center? Yeah. I mean, it was an LGBTQ specific treatment center. It was the only, the only way I would have left that place was to go to friendly house. I Mm -hmm. love everything about, you know, what, what that treatment center stood for. It gave Mm -hmm. space for, um, for underserved and marginalized populations to get recovery. And I love being a part of that. I also identify as pansexual and and it was a place where I could be free to be who I am and not um, be judged. And um, and so um, we did a lot of a lot of work and it was hard. It's hard work. It's mm-hmm. hard. Um, and when the pandemic hit, nobody knew what to do. We had these clients. People were wanting to get help. And all of a sudden, this thing was out there, and it was deadly. So, you know, I worked with Jolene and, and Monica at the time, who Jolene was uh, Grace Recovery, and Monica was the executive director of Friendly House. And we would get on the phone going, how are you guys doing this? How are you guys doing this? But what happened was, like, people like people got sick, and, and one, of the, one of our coworkers in her family, like, a couple people had had died from COVID um, mm-hmm. after getting it. And it was just so traumatizing, unbelievably traumatizing. And so when this, you know, I was, it was just tiring, you know, to consistently be hypervigilant about how to protect the people that you love um, and that the clients that are coming in that need help. So when this job came about, um, and all I had to worry about was myself and just mm-hmm. answering phones and talking to families, which I love to do. I was like, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then midway through, um, Monica was like, so I am, uh, I'm resigning. And I was like, hold up, wait a second. Um, <laughs> what? And I, and I said, well, who is going to take your place? And she looked at me and she said, you. And I was like, are we? I said, am I being punked? I just, I mean, and the first, you know, the first for me is abject terror because I love Friendly House so much. The thought of I would never want to do anything to, you know, um, to, to, I just wouldn't want to. I don't want to be in charge and 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 have it not work right. So um, and then the next thing that came over me was, you are ready. All the things that you went through, everything that you have gone through, has led you to this moment. In purpose, on purpose, for a purpose. That's right. You know? That it, the initial fear was pushed out of the way because. You got that recovery bravery, you know. Yes. And and what a place to come back to. This is my experience with Friendly House. I I went there when Peggy was still alive. Um, Monica was just getting in, 
going to be getting into that position at the time where mm-hmm. she was running the place. Um, I met Peggy. I, I, me, I was drawn to her immediately. I just thought this is like an old school lady right here. That's, that's seen a lot, especially in the recovery world, because she was already like a few decades seasoned. Right. When I told her that I work with Earl Hightower, we do interventions. Oh, I know Earl. I know his, I knew his sponsor. I knew his sponsor sponsor. So I just remember it. I thought to myself, this is kind of a historic moment because you're meeting this person and she looks really old. So you never know how long she'll be around. And she passed away shortly after, but, um, would you, would you tell people where friendly house is located and what, what it really is about? Because, um, you know, I mean, those that know, know, but those that don't know and might be in the Los Angeles area should know. Yeah. So friendly house, was established in 1951. We've been around for 71 years. We were the first women's program ever created. B. Jorgensen had a vision to be able to create a space, a safe space for women who needed to try out at that time because there was none. So Mm -hmm. the first one in the country, probably in the world, to be honest with you. Um, And um, so she was there, I believe, until... Um, she was there for like 30 years until she passed. And then Peggy came on just for six months. Mm -hmm. So they found somebody else stayed for, I want to say she stayed for 33 years too. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we've only had four executive directors, but they're friendly. It's a 12 bed uh, facility treatment facility. Now we used to be a, a structured sober living, but we wanted to evolve to meet the, the diverse needs of, of, of female identified non-binary individuals. Um, and so we, so we transitioned into a treatment center. We have a sober living and the, the idea of friendly house is built in community. It is built in recovery. And now we've added a, a, a layer of, of, you know, evidence-based treatment because we were outsourcing. When I got sober there, we were outsourcing everything. Right. Go, to, go to Saban Clinic to get some medication if you need it, to see the doctor, this, that, and the other. Now we have all those resources there. Mm-hmm. And when It's a I, non- nonprofit, correct? It's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So we're able to provide value-based, culturally competent care. Because, listen, as a woman of culture and somebody that's been in this treatment world i don't get to see a lot of us and and when we do go places really have to to understand that there is um many of us don't stay long because we don't see representation and that there isn't enough training um to be competent enough to deal with the the um different cultural aspects of of all of us. So I made it my mission to, for Friendly House, I mean, we, we work with women from all walks of life, mm-hmm. but my, but my mission is to, to help address the racial inequities and the health disparities in the BIPOC and, and in the LGBTQ communities, and that we are culturally competent enough so that when somebody comes in, 
First, there's representation. Our curriculum is reflective of the unique needs, and um, and and we we are and continue to be leaders in treatment for you know for 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 women. Love it. They, I think they have the perfect executive director. Yes, and you know um, it has been such a joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and full, it feels full circle. When I look at the women that I work with, to be able to provide mentorship and transparency and, and be able to develop these women so that um, wherever they go, they have a strong foundation, able to use their voice, able to understand their value, able to negotiate and navigate, because this treatment world is is very male-driven. Mm, you're right. I, don't, I don't know if you noticed it. Oh, I noticed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's not it's not really set up for for us to. Um, it's not really set up for us, so we have to make our own way. And part of my mission also is to to mentor other women and to provide experience, um, you know, within our within our group, so that again, we can continue to grow and expand because in, in terms of leadership, there needs to be more of us out there in leadership positions. That is where the change really starts to happen. So cultivating those, um, cultivating uh, a group of, of, of women that could, you know, could get into leadership positions is, is also something that's that I'm very passionate about. Love it. We have a lady that uh, posted on here. I'm exactly where you were when you were earlier talking about your story. I think about ending the pain. So Jacqueline, if you would like to message either Christina or I, we would love to be able to talk to you. Um, we're here for you, just so you know. Um, there's a few other people. Curtis says, love you both. Oh, hey, Curtis. Ariane says, you're beautiful. Oh. Guy gives a heart, and RJ says, love you, Christina. Oh, I'm so, yeah. And, you know, what I can say, like, I've I've had people in my life take their own lives, and I know what it did for me at that time. And But when I was in that pain, I thought that was the way out. And I'm so grateful because that I didn't do that, that um, – that I got help and, and suicide is my default. Mm-hmm. I don't want to drink anymore. I just want to die. There's 20 right. just take me out of my misery. And, and so I really, I really had to um, get some outside help and be able to um, look at that because had I done that, my son wouldn't be where he is. I wouldn't be where I'm at. I wouldn't have experienced the joy and the love and the peace and the purpose that I do now. Hmm. You, know. you have a, an event coming up for Friendly House. Do you want to talk about that real quick? I do. Um, it's our first annual comedy fundraiser. L- listen, we need to laugh because the stuff that's happening right now is not funny. And it's, and it's been extraordinarily difficult. And I do want to just say, listen, um, for those for those that are, for those women out there that are struggling with trying to figure out how to handle all of these 
assaults on our independence. Um, and um, there are ways for us to come together and coordinate and be strategic about supporting those that support us. Um, it can be a it can be a uh, highly charged emotional issue. And all I can say is that we have to take care of ourselves and we have to stick together. And, um, you know, so this, so this comedy fundraiser that's happening Saturday, July 16th at the Fonda Theater is gonna be hosted by Rosie O'Donnell, who's also very vocal about things, and I love that. Mm -hmm. And uh, headlined by Kathy Griffin and uh, Gina Yashir is gonna be a special guest, Beth Lapidus and um, Atsuko. I don't wanna, her last name is one of those names that I don't wanna even, great comedians. And it's mm -hmm. all, and all the money is going to go towards Friendly House. Mm -hmm. And and this, you know, this when we do these fundraisers, we're able to scholarship, and that's why we're able to, uh, you know, provide affordable care as a nonprofit. All you need to do is pay my bills, mm -hmm. and then, and then make sure that women who don't have resources are able to benefit from our program. And it's from these fundraisers that we're able to do that. So if you do want to get tickets. Um, it is coming up. You can go to our website, www.friendlyhousela.org, and you can buy directly from our website. If you um, aren't able to go, but you still want to donate a ticket, we can give it to our alumni um, and our residents. And you can also um, email myself. Should I put it? Should I put my email in the chat? I don't know how this works. Um, or just you, put info you, at friendlyhousela.org too. You can be like, here's some tickets. <laughs> or you could just donate. <laughs> Later on, if you want, you can go into the chat unless you can see it right now and you can put okay. it there. Too. It's up to you. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, this event sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I love the Friendly Great. House um, events in the past that I've been to. They're always happening. They're always good. They're It's good for, for a good cause. Um I, I really, you know, like I, I've seen, I've known you for years and uh, just your vibe is so contagious. Like just you're a good woman and you're known to be a good woman in recovery that helps so, so many people. And I love, love uh, the fact that you're back at Friendly House and just, you. you know, just the lady that you are. So it's, it's been such a pleasure to have you on here today mm -hmm. on this Saturday morning and to hear about your, your uh, journey in your recovery and who you are. Thank you for being on the corner. Love you, you very much. Thank you. We are Have miracles. <laughs> Have a good day. All right. Bye. Bye.